0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the
1: world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling, a special edition, as it were, as we're coming to you from Las Vegas from the ICSC event here in Vegas. First time they've held this conference in three years and coming up on today's episode, We will talk with Lacey Beasley, the president of Retail Strategies, our first interview in a series of interviews here from ICSC. We'll have a discussion about retail going rural and the trend of retailers after the pandemic and also a little bit going into the pandemic, kind of modifying their retail operations to open up in small and mid-sized markets. We'll talk about some of the dynamics that retailers look at before they move ...into such markets, and also overall trends, along with overall trends and which retail stores those small and mid-sized markets most want to go after. In news, we'll talk a little auto parts retail, and in looking ahead, a new type of shopping cart hits Albertson's stores in a trial run. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media, at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter few new pictures up on Instagram from the conference here today. So let's get right into it. Advance Auto Parts released earnings this afternoon. No earnings call, so we didn't get a whole lot of detail on these numbers, but they did beat on bottom line expectations with earnings of $3.57 per share. That bested consensus estimates of $3.48 per share. However, sales did take a step back from 2021 when you factor in inflation now that being said comps were positive up 0.6 percent over last year's first quarter but advance was quick to point out that on a two-year stack basis comps were up 25.3 percent for their first quarter they did cycle the 2021 stimulus payments and so comps in this latest quarter kind of began to slip about six weeks into the quarter got into the negatives as they were cycling the stimulus payments from last year the quarter began positive but as far as comps were concerned tilted downward this effect was mostly concerning the diy customers so those in-store sales or omni-channel sales through their stores the company also blamed weather cooler temperatures and higher precipitation versus last year for curtailing their spring sales season as this quarter wore on. The good news for Advance is that sales to professional customers remained somewhat strong, and that led to overall sales increases of 1.3% for the quarter. So you're looking at that top line going up 1.3%. New stores also helped out there. That's something we haven't been able to say for Advance for a little while as they've been more in the mode of Closing stores while opening others, mostly net neutral, but the number of stores in their system rose to 4,998 by the end of this first quarter at the conclusion of April. Net openings of 27 over that three month span as their closures began to slow and they fully integrate those CarQuest locations, some of which they had closed due to redundancy with an advance so close nearby. Despite that top-line boost, inflationary pressures still provided a hit to the bottom line for advance, even though they did beat on those analyst expectations. Overall sales increases of 1.3%. That's going to lag inflation for the sector. That was estimated. Inflation was to be mid-single digits or greater, although we will get more clarification on the impacts of inflation in all likelihood during advance's call tomorrow, which would be Tuesday, May 24th. Labor and fuel costs for them were up, as was cost of goods sold. Channel mix also hurt them. So those fewer in-store sales we talked about, fewer DIY customers coming through their doors, that meant less margin for the company. And also the opening costs of new stores also rose. We talk about the net openings of 27 in the quarter. Of course, construction costs going up, the cost to stock and staff those new stores are going up so it only makes sense that you're seeing the overall cost of those openings go up at a time when advance is shifting back into store opening mode all of this led to selling general and administrative expenses increasing by just over five percent year over year went from 37 percent of net sales to 38.6 percent of net sales so it increased as a proportion of net sales and thus provided a bit of a hit to that bottom line now as far as how their first quarter sales affects their 2022 projections it appears as though things are more or less in line with what they expected coming into the year they noted in prepared remarks that comp sales for the first four weeks or so of their second quarter were more in line with their full year guidance up one to three percent so obviously that is a good sign positive there it appears as though the headwinds causing comps to fall in stores during the first quarter or during the tail end of the first quarter that affected again primarily diy sales those have waned and therefore we see sales more in line with what they expected even though those sales figures or their sales increases may be lagging in inflation they also reaffirmed earlier guidance for all key numbers in terms of sales for the complete year they still expect to open 125 to 150 new stores during the course of the year provided that there are no unexpected closures this would put them over the 5,000 mark and it's kind of encouraging to see them shift back into more aggressive brick and mortar growth we typically associate that with the likes of O'Reilly and AutoZone a little bit more often in this space as an example in their last fiscal year Advance Auto Parts closed four net stores company-wide so despite some openings they ended up shrinking their overall presence by four stores. So it's promising you're starting to see them shift back into gear, pun fully intended, in terms of opening those new stores. And one aside, they did announce today the rollout of a new 12-volt aftermarket battery from Die Hard, designed for those with electronic vehicles or hybrids. Based on their remarks, they figure this to be a modest sales driver over the next few years as customers with those type of vehicles seek more DIY solutions. So overall, I think you can paint this quarter for advanced auto parts slightly positive, but I think you're going to see more positivity as the year wears on. You're not going to see those explosive comps, and you probably won't see comps keep up with inflation, but still it's a positive in that they're no longer in that store closing mode, and they continue to open new stores as 2022 rolls on well speaking of new stores after this break we'll be joined by Lacey Beasley the president of retail strategies retail strategies is a company that oftentimes works with retailers as well as municipalities to kind of matchmake, if you will and Lacey's going to join us to discuss the process behind opening new stores in rural and small town locations for major retailers including sometimes modifying that square footprint with, as she'll note, as far as the restaurant industry is concerned, very good results. It's a wide-spanning conversation, and associate producer McKenna Langley and I will be joining you right after this. Well, we kick off our interview series at ICSC, and we're pleased to be joined by Lacey Beasley, the president of Retail Strategies, and as we were talking off the air about before we came on, rural and mid sized market retail, so important to retail here in the United States. We're going to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about what retail strategy does as well. But Lacey, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us this morning
0: thrilled to be here. and Thank you for your time. You know, rural retail is something we're very passionate about at Retail Strategies, and I'm personally passionate about it. I grew up in a rural town in Roswell, New Mexico, and it's just where we live and breathe. So very excited to have this discussion with you.
1: Roswell, New Mexico, also a town near and dear to our hearts. We've done a lot of research in and around that town. So first of all, what does Retail Strategies do as a company? What are you guys involved with?
0: Yeah, simply put, Retail Strategies works with communities to help them identify the retailers and restaurants that are not in their city and how to get them there. We help navigate the retail real estate waters. So when a community hires us, we do an inventory of properties. We look at all the properties that are viable for commercial development. We look at the retailers and restaurants that are not there and then essentially play matchmaker, actively do business recruitment as an extension of the economic development staff.
1: We'll talk a little bit about some of the dynamics of rural retail during the pandemic here in a second. But first, I wanted to ask you, what's maybe the most misunderstood aspect about mid to small size market retail?
0: Well, it's just so often overlooked. There's so much emphasis on the major metropolitan areas, but really the fiber of America is made up through rural America. It's across the country. So there's two different ways you have to think about retail. One, you think about national retailers and the main retail corridor on your highway where you have the largest traffic counts in town. And those are the daily goods and services and amenities, the grocery store, the general merchandise, the restaurants, even the fast food restaurants that are so important to the retail sales tax collections for that city, the property tax and the jobs. I think often when we think about retail jobs, they're typically lower wages. But there's still one in four jobs in America as a retail job. So typically it dwarfs every other category in the number of retail jobs that are there. So it's very important to focus on retail as a part of your economic development strategy. But then also think about your downtown Downtown is the heart and soul and character of Midtown America, small towns in America. So that's really what drives your tourism. It drives your sense of community and place. Those are typically local businesses. So local businesses, in most cases, will generate anywhere from 100000 a year to 500000 a year in annual revenue, and they might employ one to five people. Where your national retailers, such as Walmart, an average Walmart's going to do eighty million a year plus three hundred people. So you really have to think about the economics of it and have a twofold approach of national retail and local retail.
1: So now let's talk about how things went during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. because I know there was a lot of concern for rural retail going into the pandemic but we saw many retailers tractor supply company would be a great example absolutely surged during the pandemic what was the dynamic there during the pandemic as far as where people were shopping and also the impact on those towns from as you mentioned things like hiring things like sales tax collection
0: Absolutely. When the pandemic first hit at Retail Strategies, we're a national firm. We work with cities in 36 states, actually, and they're primarily population of 75,000 and less. So initially, we were very concerned about what this meant to our municipalities. A lot of these schools, water, fire, sewer, these municipal budget, very critical elements of running a community are paid for through retail sales tax. So with the retailers forced to close their doors, we were very anxious about what that might mean to these small towns. Well, ultimately what happened is a lot of them saw a substantial increase in their retail sales tax. And that's because people weren't commuting to work. They were shopping locally they were canceling that family vacation and doing home improvement projects. You mentioned tractor supply, which is a great example. We saw Lowe's Home Depot and tractor supply with annual year-over-year increases of around 20%. And a lot of the fast food restaurants just killed it during this time because of their drive through restaurants. Sonic saw a 30% increase in the first six months of the pandemic because it was something we were comfortable with. And it makes up the majority of the GLA, the gross leasable area of rural America are these categories that really thrived during that downturn. So ultimately, our towns were very resilient. They listened to each other. They listened to their needs. They adapted quickly, and they did very well. So
1: I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier, because I think we're all familiar with the highway corridor. You see the Walmart. You see the Walmart-anchored strip center next to it. But you mentioned the importance of downtown to a lot of these smaller communities. Just a couple of anecdotes. Earlier this year, I was in Williston, North Dakota. Maurice's had moved into the downtown area. Ashland, Wisconsin, same deal. When I was there in March, Maurice's had just opened up in the downtown area. What are some communities trying to do as far as maybe attracting some of these larger retailers to backfill these spots that are very valuable in these downtown districts?
0: That is a great question. And if you look at most national retailers, they're looking at five metrics for sites. So they're going to look at traffic, highest traffic countdown, really good parking. They're going to look for co-tenancies. So other uses that complement them, don't compete with them, but also have the same hours. They're gonna look at access in and out of the shopping center and signage. So those are the five things. And if you think about a typical shopping center, they're all built around those things. You think about a downtown, and each property has a different owner And they typically don't have the highest traffic count in town. You don't want that. Signage is different. Co-tenancy is different. All those things. So that's why downtown is typically better suited for startup companies, entrepreneurship, the local businesses, as opposed to the nationals. But we are seeing a swing and a shift back to the emphasis in downtown right now. And retailers are realizing they have to reinvent themselves as they're trying to capture the wallet share of the Gen Zs, which crave more authenticity in their shopping experience. And all the retailers are looking at that. They're also very, very focused on omni-channeling, having that seamless integration between brick and mortar and online. And even omni-channeling is becoming a bit of a tired term. You just have to be all things mobile to that consumer and certainly that younger generation. And I think that actually is going to play well for the downtowns of our future because these retailers are determining how they can shrink their sales store space and make it a little bit smaller, more adaptable and feel more authentic to the consumer.
1: Now you mentioned the potential shrinking of space as well. It's not always a retailer looks at a town, throws a cookie cutter format in and then leaves. Oftentimes retailers are adjusting based on the size of the town, based on the needs of the town. As you dialogue with retailers, what are some factors they take into consideration regarding maybe adjusting their footprint, their store layout, et cetera, for these smaller towns?
0: Yeah, they definitely, certainly do. So every retailer, when they look at where they're going to open next, then they're going to do a projected sales volume for that. So that's a series of demographics and the site and co-tenancy. And there's a lot of varied reasons that play into that equation of that projected sales volume. What we're seeing is a lot of change, especially post-pandemic, specifically in the QSR space. So Burger King, Whataburger, even Chipotle, they are shrinking their in-store dining and expanding their drive through and curbside pickup because they've seen how they can maximize their store sales that way and have a good experience for the consumer. And ultimately, convenience and experience for the consumer drive all the rest of it. Take Chick-fil-A, for example. Pre-pandemic, their average annual store sales volumes were around 4 million. They're now 8 million. You look at a retailer that really adopted and figured out how to use their mobile app to retrain the consumer on how to shop there, and it's a better experience for the consumer. And even in some communities, because the drive-through cannot accommodate all the vehicles, they're stacking and there's a problem of backing up traffic, and it's considered a public nuisance for some cities. And so for Chick-fil-A to be able to adapt and determine how you can very quickly order on your app, pay on your app, pick up extremely quickly or pick up through the curbs and the stalls, then it's better for the consumer, it's better for the city, and clearly it's better for Chick-fil-A considering they've nearly doubled their store sales volume. So retailers are constantly changing, but we as the consumers are the ones that are determining the changes they make.
1: And I'm also curious on the other side of things. As you interact with cities, as you interact with towns throughout the U.S., it's difficult to generalize, and I'm certainly sympathetic to that fact, but... What would you say that these smaller communities or even mid-sized communities are saying they need the most when they do, say, avoid analysis or something along those lines?
0: We always hear three brands. We hear Trader Joe's. Target and (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Those are the top three brands we get requests for. We hear a lot about casual dining concepts. And when you look at the national casual dining concepts, there aren't very many that are aggressively expanding across the country. So we have found that that is better as a homegrown. The nice sit-down restaurants, as it's often referred to, that's better as a homegrown type concept. and something that is unique and Instagrammable, right? You think about the younger generations love to take pictures of their food and they don't necessarily want to take a picture of something generic. So casual dining is a big request. And that's something just we're not seeing a lot of national expansion. But we are seeing a lot of demand for grocery as well. And there's a handful of grocery concepts that are expanding. We see a lot with apparel. And another major void just in the market is men's clothing. We hear that a lot in rural America that they want more men's clothing options.
1: Somehow the pictures from Olive Garden aren't quite as Instagram worthy as those fixtures from those local restaurants, nothing against all of them. Absolutely. Love the breadsticks. <laughs> You're but right. I did want to ask you also about obstacles, because oftentimes you know you can connect one retailer with one town, but of course in the dialogue between the two, there's going to be obstacles along the way. What are some obstacles retailers or maybe even towns face as they begin to build in these communities or backfill spaces in these communities?
0: Yeah, there's about 19,000 localities in the country. And just generalizing, you look at that 80-20 rule, right? So about 80% of those localities have a population of less than 25,000. Now about 80% of the U.S. population actually lives in those larger areas. So when you're a retailer and they announce on Wall Street they're going to do 200 new locations in the country this year, they have a lot of options. There's a lot of cities that might look similar demographically. So what sets them apart? And it's going to be the real estate. And that's where we have a unique model at Retail Strategies is really looking at the real estate of that market and breaking down those barriers to entry into that city. So it's really knowing all the nuances of it, knowing the property owner and their local story. And that's where the local leaders can really make a difference is knowing the family dynamics and the ownership of that property that they can bring to the table. So that's a big part of it. But we've also seen a lot of communities that are very business friendly and that they are Closing the gap in the public-private partnerships. So for instance, if a developer wants to come into a city or a retailer wants to come into a city and they say, here's our estimated annual sales volume, here's our cost of operation, it doesn't create enough of a return for us to open in this market. And they have a lot of competition. There's a lot of cities across the country. For the local city manager, the mayor, the economic development agency to step up and say, you know, we can do a public-private partnership and capture a percentage of the property tax or sales tax that's generated off of this brand new retailer for a period of time, apply it back to the project for a period of time, everybody wins. And so through that, whatever that incentive might be, they can give to the developer or the retailer. Then ultimately it makes deals happen that might not happen otherwise. And so the communities that are very business friendly and understand the benefits of the public-private partnership, they really can't set themselves apart.
1: Now, to close things out, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. I know you visit a lot of these rural to mid sized areas. As you think about maybe your visits to these places over the last couple of years, could you give us a couple of examples as far as areas that you find very compelling or areas that you think are, are maybe doing things the right way, not only as far as attracting retail, but just attracting attention to their town overall?
0: Absolutely. We have partnerships with, there's a handful of states that we have partnerships. So one is the Tennessee Economic and Community Development. So great relationships with the state of Tennessee. They believe that rural is very important and retail is very important. We work with Electricities of North Carolina, which is actually a, a public power provider, that has 51 member cities and they believe in economic development and retail and so we have a close partnership with them. I'll tell you the state of Texas does a phenomenal job and it's because of the way that their tax structure is built very business friendly substantial growth in the state of Texas as especially whether they like it or not a lot of California is moving to Texas and we're seeing a lot of growth there which obviously drives retail and you know there's certain states that the Local collection for retail sales tax really drives that local budget in a way, such as Alabama and Oklahoma, where there's greater emphasis on retail and they're willing to get creative with those public-private partnerships to be very competitive. So those are just a handful of states. California does a great job. It's a complicated state from each of their different sections, but there's a handful of entities there that are also heavily focused in retail.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for the time this morning, Lacey. We appreciate you discussing this. Obviously, a matter that we talk a lot about on the show, but appreciate you taking the time and hope you have a great rest of your conference here.
0: Absolutely. Can I make one more point? Thank you so much for your time today, and I'm so glad that you're highlighting rural America. And I just want to emphasize that ICSC traditionally was International Council of Shopping Centers, and now with ICSC rebranding with the tagline Innovating Commerce Serving Communities, We are so thrilled to see community as a part of that tagline and see the greater emphasis from ICSC on community and really want to see that membership grow. So for anybody that's tuned into this podcast and interested in growing retail in your community, I highly encourage you to look at ICSC and the value of that as a return and become a member of ICSC. You get a database of 50,000 industry professionals, endless resources, and conferences, which give us the ability to have face-to-face networking.
1: The rebrand so important. I think we can all agree on that. It's fantastic to see. Well, once again, Lacey, thank you for your time and yeah. best of luck going forward.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, have a great day. Have a great show. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts.
1: Well, we thank Lacey for joining us, and we're going to piggyback off of this conversation with Lacey with a conversation next week with Elliot Cook. He's the director of real estate for Downtown Strategies, which is a subsidiary of Retail Strategies. And while we talked with Lacey briefly about those downtown areas in the small to midsize markets, Elliot is going to go into detail in terms of what he's seeing in these markets regarding turning around the downtown areas making them more robust making them more marketable to gen z and millennial consumers as far as the mix of retail they are bringing in and some other factors such as walkability in their downtown area we look forward to that conversation airing next week again with elliot cook now in our final segment our looking ahead segment let's take a look at albertson's as they have partnered with Veve Incorporated and they are piloting a number of new type shopping carts in their stores. These carts look very much almost like target carts, if you will, except for the inclusion of a screen and a payment device within the cart. And so this is kind of a new type of pay and go technology. The cart has built in scanners and also built in scales for produce items as well. Basically, as you shop, it's going to scan those items. You can input specific weight for produce as a result of the scale being integrated into the cart. And then when you're finished shopping, you can press the checkout button on the screen. Of course, remit payment right there at the shopping cart. Now, the reason I'm looking ahead at this is, again, this is going to be piloted in a few dozen stores for Albertsons. One would probably guess it's going to be maybe in the inland northwest, right around Idaho, which is where Albertsons is, of course, based, but really looking to see if these type of carts manage to take over, what kind of maintenance these carts will require for the associates and the staff in those stores and whether or not customers find them easy to use. Now, of course, so much has been made of Amazon's technology regarding their stores and their locations where you can skip the checkout. Of course this is a technology that others including 7-Eleven are trialing as well. This cart is a little bit more dynamic. It also gives you directions to find items in the store according to Vive, and it also integrates with your existing mobile app for Albertsons or Safeway or whichever branch that you happen to download the app under. So. I think a lot to go into consideration here especially given that the cost for these carts is likely to be much greater than the cost of a regular shopping cart do customers find it that much more convenient is this something that drives up customer engagement that much more to make this a widespread program if it is the way of the future congratulations to albertson certainly for giving this a shot and hoping to make my way to one of the trialing albertson's locations so I can try it out myself in the future. Well, that'll do it for us here on this week's episode of the Retail Focus Podcast. Once again, next week we'll be joined by Elliot Cook, the Director of Real Estate for Retail Strategies, but we have a number of interviews lined up from ICSC, including a chat with a couple of attorneys with a focus towards retail. They'll talk about what they do on the day-to-day as far as leases with commercial real estate We'll also be joined in future weeks by Matt Montgomery, the managing director of a company called Calibrate. He'll talk about how companies evaluate where to put new locations and also how to adjust their existing locations. We're also scheduled to talk with representatives from some companies that provide services in-store services to retailers, such as those smart carts that you see around retail stores. And we're scheduled to chat with Brandon Eisner, who is the CBRE head of retail research Always great to talk things over with him. Well, once again, for associate producer McKenna Langley, I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week on the Retail Focus Podcast.
0: This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.